You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Well, hello, and welcome to Unquirking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today, oh, oh, I have a few fun things to share with you. Very fun, as a matter of fact. Um, the first is, uh, I should say, are, are some thoughts I have on living a dual life. How fun is that, living a dual life? No, I'm not talking about having a second family that no one knows about, you know, like Dollar Bill and Billions. Rather, I mean, wearing multiple hats professionally. Quick story, when I first started my business, uh, which is called Vertigo Partners, Actually, actually, that wasn't the original name. The original name was Symphony LLC because I had these grand plans of uh, envisioning myself as the conductor of a, uh, of market research, and I can go into that in great detail, but I won't. I wound up changing the name for a number of reasons, not the least of which there were like four other companies called Symphony out there and two of them in, in the research and insights industry. So uh, there you have it. Um, but I was working for MasterCard at the time. It was 2002. Uh, I was in my late 20s. I think it was 27 or 28. And I, I had gone from having zero kids to three kids in literally three minutes. On April 16th, 2002, at 2.07 in the morning, I became a father for the first time. At 2.08, I became a father for the second time. And at 2.09, there you have it. Father for the third time. <laughs> we have triplets. Um, and I needed, I mean, I needed an extra income stream. Uh, there was there was no doubt about it. I, I was not prepared for the financial strain having three kids uh, would provide. So I started a company and I, and I started it to do ghostwriting for clients. I had some friends in the market research industry who enjoyed doing the research, not so much writing up the findings. That's where I came in. So I do some ghostwriting and that's the example of the dual life I'm talking about, you know, doing something during the day and then, you know, you know, adding to it at night, <laughs> you know, just adding, having a second job. And in the old days, we had a term for that. We called it moonlighting. That's what we called it. You might remember that show with uh, Bruce Willis and uh, who is it? Sybil Shepard uh, moonlighting and Booger Booger from uh, Revenge of the Nerds. Curtis. What's his name? Curtis. Curtis Armstrong. Curtis. Armstrong was in Moonlighting, too. Um, who would remember that? Why, why do I remember this? I have no idea. Anyway, we called that practice Moonlighting. But today there is like a more hip term for it. You know, it's called having a side hustle, right? Sounds better than Moonlighting. Maybe a little more dangerous. Um, and it, sometimes that side hustle is is made possible by something called the gig economy. Ooh. Now, now listen, if these terms don't mean anything to you, don't worry. It just means that, like me, you're older than 45, um, but I started thinking about this, this idea of having a, a dual professional life after interviewing a first time author this week. Her, her name is Christina Sweeney Baird, and her debut novel is coming out in April. It's called The End of Men. 
Uh, interesting title for a book, by the way, The End of Men. Imagine if a man wrote a book called The End of Women. I don't know that it would be published as quickly as a book called The End of Men, but that's just me. Who knows? Um, now, when my wife asked me what this book was about, I told her. I told her it's about a virus that only kills men. <laughs> and she's like, where can I find this utopia? Uh, ouch, right? I mean, that 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 seems kind of mean. I'm just kidding. She didn't say that. Um, <laughs> I don't think she asked me what the book was about or who I was interviewing, but, but who knows? Um, now, listen, uh, I, I'm going to post my interview with Christina a bit closer to her book's launch. Her, her publisher asked me to, to hold off on it, so I'll, I'll oblige that. But something she said with me struck a chord. Now, for context, Christina is 28 years old, and she works full-time as a lawyer. Uh, don't hold that against her. She works full-time as a lawyer. And I, when I asked her about you know, how she balanced lawyering with writing, she had the following to say. At times I'm very tired, <laughs> but I think, um, I think it's, you know, well, on, on a practical level, I just think that's how most people are doing it. You know, it's a very rare person who is realistically going to commit full time to writing before you have any idea of if you're good at it, if you're going to be able to monetize it. You know, I, I, I don't know anyone who has written a book without working at the same time, I have yeah. to say. So I think on a practical level, it's just kind of what you have to do. How about that, huh? Now, I remember um, once I told somebody that I was going to interview a fellow author and comic. The guy's name was Og Stone. Uh, he was the author and comic I was interviewing. He wasn't the person who said the following. Um, but Og had a, had a book out called Off License to Kill. And, you know, in addition to, to interviewing authors, you know, who are published by these great big publishing companies, and I'm very fortunate to be able to do that, I also like to interview um, self-published authors because I like to have their perspective as well. Um, I like to have a range of perspectives on uncorking a story. And when this person who I was talking to asked me who I was interviewing, I told her, you know, uh, and her reply to me was, oh, he's a nobody. He's a nobody, meaning that he hasn't made it big yet, you know, that he's not earning his living from his craft yet. And I'll be honest, I, I was upset by that comment. It was offensive to me and it was hurtful. Now, I met this author through the comedy circuit that I was doing uh, pre-COVID. And he and I had a lot in common in that, you know, we were both trying our hats at stand up. We we're both very early in, into that game. And, you know, both of our work was self-published. You know, our writing was self-published. And I guess I'm still bitter about it because I thought about to thought about it to talk about it now. But, you know, here's the thing. That person who I was talking to who made that comment you know, is not alone in how she thinks about authors. You know, I, I think a lot of people have this picture in their heads of the reclusive writer who bangs out pages all day and doesn't need to do anything else to earn a living. And then they earn a mint upon publication. Now, those of you who are authors are probably laughing at that now. And I just have one thing to say about it. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. That's right. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> Now, people who have a passion for the arts have to work other jobs. You know, I see it as a writer and as, a, as an aspiring stand-up. You know, the guys I, I've done stand-up with, they are all working other jobs. Uh, even guys who headline um, are working other jobs. I don't mean like the big touring headliners. I mean the local, you know, the local headliners here in, in Connecticut. You know, they're, they're, all, they're all doing something else during the day. You know, and similarly, I have, a, I have a good friend who's got a number of different acting credits to his name, and he has to hustle as an executive recruiter during the day. 
you know, and, and I think it's a good thing. These are good things because, you know, the experiences we have while doing those other things, right, those things in addition to our art, in addition to our craft, make our writing or make our performances that much more real. You know, we're more relatable and you can tell, you know, it brings an authenticity to our output that may not be there otherwise. So I think those are good things. You know, not even the most successful among us is born to do this kind of work. You know, we have to work at it every day. And when that first publication hits or after that first non-open mic performance, you know, where you might make 25 bucks for your <laughs> for your time, you know, in front of a, an audience who paid to see you, um, you're not going to be a household name. You're not going to be a household name. You know, and, and it, as a matter of fact, there's going to be more Mike Carlin and Aug Stones out there than Matt Heggs or Tess Gerritsen's, you know, just to name a few of the A-listers that I've had on this program. But you know what we do? We keep at it. You know, we do it every day or we do it every night, you know, and with those repetitions, we start to see improvements and we get stronger. And then maybe one day all of those reps add up and they pay off so that we get some recognition of all the hard work we've put in. And hopefully we can devote more time to it, you know, to that passion, to that craft, because we don't need to rely on another job as much for income. But again, that's the exception. It's not the rule. You know, that's that's the exception, not the rule, which reminds me, which reminds me something fun. Um, I wrote a story about a guy who was living a double life. But but the thing is, he didn't know it. That sounds kind of funny, right? He's living a double life, but he didn't know it. <laughs> he couldn't really benefit from it. Um, he had a secret identity just hiding beneath the surface. And it took a fiery redheaded actress on the run to bring out his inner Superman. Now, his name is Kelly Carson, and he's the protagonist in my 2017 book, All the Fucks I Cannot Give. Sorry about the title, Dad. I know you don't like that title, um, but that's the name of the book. That's the name of the book, and I'm not changing it. You know, if, if the subtle art of not giving a fuck can be a New York Times bestseller, there's no reason why All the Fucks I Cannot Give can't either. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so uh, now the here's the thing here the big news the audiobook version of that story it ha- came out recently and I wanted to share the first few chapters with you here so so keep listening you're gonna hear the first three chapters of all the fucks I cannot give if you like what you hear please consider buying it on either Amazon or audible um, those are the two places where you can buy the audiobook I think there's a third maybe on Apple I think you might be able to buy it on Apple. Uh, too. But Amazon or Audible, that'll be easy for you. Now, listen, this was narrated by a guy named Mike Dawson. He did a great job with his narration. Uh, you'll you'll be able to tell in the first like 10 seconds of listening to him talk. Um, it, it, fantastic. Now, Mike, it, it does this kind of work. I have a link to his uh, website on uh, on the post. Um, so so go look it up. He's also if you, if you think he sounds familiar, he, he's the voice of the Adam Carolla show. Um, which is a very popular podcast. So um, enjoy. Now, listen, um, uh, I think you're going to like it. I hope you like it. If you do, let me know. If you don't, let me know too. I want to hear it all. I like to hear feedback. I'm a research guy at heart. So all feedback is good feedback if as long as it's honest. All right. So uh, have fun listening to uh, the first few chapters of All the Fucks I Cannot Give and uh, be on the lookout in April for my long-form interview with Christina Sweeney-Baird about her book, The End of Men. And as always, happy listening. Chapter 1. Confrontation isn't my strong suit. One might think the worst day in a man's life might be when he finds his wife in bed with another person. 
but I knew my wife Laura was a lesbian very early into our marriage. No, she didn't have the telltale ring of keys clamped to one of her belt loops by a carabiner, nor did she ever come out and admit, Kelly, I'm really not into dudes. Come to think of it, the fact that my parents gave me a woman's name may have been what attracted her to me in the first place. Apologies for the digression. No, I knew my wife was a lesbian because my twin sister, Josephine, who everybody calls Joe, spotted her in a gay bar shortly after we returned home from our honeymoon ten years ago. FYI, Joe is a lesbian, and my father considers her the son he never had. She's also my best friend. At first, I didn't believe her because the initial photographic evidence of Laura chatting with another woman at a bar appeared innocent. Sure, it was clear she was at our town's lesbian bar, the Meow Mix, because the name is plastered all over the wall and was captured in every still image Joe sent me. Oddly, all the women were dressed as Schneider from one day at a time for an event called Pat Harrington Night. So what? I thought to myself. I've heard that oftentimes women feel more comfortable at those places than straight bars because they don't get hit on as much. When Joe showed me the picture of my wife tongue-kissing a woman who resembled Nancy McKeon from The Facts of Life, I chalked it up to Laura being a bit curious. I didn't confront her about it because, by nature, I hate confrontation. Nothing scares me more than causing conflict, so I tried to forget about it and buried it. Denial is my absolute favorite defense mechanism. When I caught Laura in the act with my eyes, that was different. It was on a day I came home from a business trip early. Instead of taking the early morning flight from San Diego to New York, I decided to take a red eye so I could get to our suburban Connecticut home early as a surprise to my wife. She was surprised all right, especially when I walked in on her and our handywoman, Ella, doing more than just playing doctor in our bed. The back of my wife's head resembled a bear fishing for salmon swimming upstream. A more aggressive man would have offered to join them. But part of being non-confrontational means I'm also not the least bit aggressive. I simply coughed loudly to make my presence known. Ella opened her eyes and stared at me with a look of shock on her face. Laura unburied her face from between her girlfriend's thighs, thus ending the gynecological exam, turned around and simply said, Oh, fuck. She then rolled over, pulled our sheets over the two of them, and reached for the pack of cigarettes on our cherry wood nightstand. At the time, I wanted to say something other than, Since when do you smoke? But that was the only phrase I could muster. I didn't expect you until later, Laura said, while maintaining eye contact and exhaling a plume of smoke through her nose. I wanted to surprise you, so I took the red eye. I told you never to take the red eye since you're always grumpy and you don't get enough sleep. Apparently that's not the only reason, I muttered under my breath. I remember turning around so Ella could get dressed with some degree of privacy. After she left the room, Laura confirmed what my sister had been telling me all along. She is, in fact, drumroll please, a lesbian, and only married me to appease her conservative parents who loved that their wild child of a daughter was settling down with a white-collar guy who had a good job. It certainly explained why we were on the quarterly plan when it came to sex. Incidentally, that was supposed to be a night of matrimonial Congress, but Congress decided to take a 10-year hiatus. That's right, I have not had sex with another human being in 10 years.
I remember being more shocked than angry, and since we've already established that Laura and I have a hard time dealing with conflict, I agreed to Laura's proposition that we live in an open marriage, which we've done for the past decade. She argued that it would give us the best of both worlds, the freedom to explore other people and the appearance of living a normal life, which would appease both of our families. Ever since then, I've buried myself in work and focused on my career and not chasing some serious tale. I can't say the same for Laura, who chose to bury herself in beaver like a fat man at a Las Vegas buffet. So while that was a pretty shitty day for Kelly Carson, that's me, if you haven't guessed. It wasn't the worst day of my life. Now, that would be today, the day my spineless boss fired me, over the telephone. Chapter 2. My Spineless Boss I work in the field of marketing research, and before I educate you more on what that means, let me just make something perfectly clear. No one in this field says to themselves, I want to study consumer opinion for the rest of my life. No one goes to school for a degree in market research. People who wind up in this field have dreams of becoming psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists, or any of the other ologists one can become after almost a decade of higher education. For one reason or another, though, they wind up selling out and applying their research skills to marketing problems. My story isn't unique in that regard. I was all set to earn a PhD in clinical psychology from a prestigious university, but decided to take my father's advice and work for a year before returning to school. I took a job at a well-known New York-based advertising agency, and that's where I saw my first focus group. The topic was what people would want in a website from their bank, and the guy leading the discussion looked like he was having a blast engaging people in conversation and asking probing follow-up questions. At the time, I thought it looked like a cross between group therapy and improvisational theater, and I knew right then and there that I wanted to do that for the rest of my life, so I turned down the opportunity to earn my doctorate and pursued running focus groups full-time. Seventeen years ago, I left the agency world to work for a research company called Stalin Partners, run by an inspiring woman named Michelle Stahl, who had a pension for French wine, younger men, and a cocaine habit that would shock Charlie Sheen. She was looking for the next generation of moderators to run her business so she could retire early and spend her days in Hawaii with her collection of antique Coke spoons and boy toys of the week. While she was, and this is putting it mildly, batshit crazy, she had moments of lucidity when she taught me the ins and outs of leading group discussions and keeping clients happy. According to her, the key to the latter was offering sexual services after each night of research and submitting to their every demand. That's one of two bits of advice I didn't take from her. The other being never to believe a drug dealer when he says he'll be over in 20 minutes. I didn't take that advice because, well, I've never required the services of a drug dealer. I'm as square as they come. A little over two years ago, I walked into the office and Michelle informed me and the rest of the staff that she had sold her firm to Omnivore, a large holding company, and that we would be integrated into their research division. She also informed us 
that she made $20 million on the sale. Even though she had a three-year earnout, I never saw her again and often wondered if she lived to see her mid-50s. The following day, I met my new boss, Pete Jackson. You know Pete Jackson. Even if you've never met him, you know him. Why do I say this? Because he exists in every American high school. He was likely the captain of the lacrosse team, maybe the student council president. Always had a positive, go-get-em attitude, even though you knew he was full of shit and said whatever he needed to in order to get ahead. Ring any bells? My first meeting with Pete was one I'll never forget. He sauntered into a conference room 15 minutes late for an all-hands meeting, he called. He was wearing a plaid sport coat and trendy green Coke bottle glasses and was clearly trying to look younger than his 57 years by dressing down with a pair of designer jeans and black sneakers, which, for all intents and purposes, looked orthopedic. As he walked into the room, he tucked the Nalgene water bottle he was never seen without under his arm and started clapping, as if to suggest we should all clap when he entered. Team! he exclaimed. Thanks for coming. I've heard so many good things about all of you, and I can only imagine what you've heard about me. I can assure you, only half of what you heard is true. Actually, what I had heard was that Pete was about 1% businessman and 99% bullshit, but that for some reason the board liked that ratio well enough to believe he could double the revenue in our department. I like to be scrappy, so don't expect anything too formal from me. And the only thing I expect from you is that you kill it and crush it every day. Right then and there, I knew this asshole had no idea what we did as moderators. We don't kill. We don't crush. We talk to strangers and turn their stories into insights our clients can use to make better decisions. No killing required. Who here wants to take Pork Chop Hill with me? After he said Pork Chop Hill... I made a mental note to revise my resume that afternoon. Much to my surprise, the other people in the room all stood up and cheered. One even let out a hoorah with a little vibrato as if he were Al Pacino's understudy in Scent of a Woman, the musical. I remained sitting, unable to comprehend the shitstorm that just walked into the room. What's your name? Pete said to me. Kelly, I replied. Kelly? That's a girl's name. I could tell the minute he heard my name that this was what his response would be. Call it a would-be woman's intuition. It's the name my parents gave me. I told you before that my parents named me Kelly, but I didn't mention why. Now's as good a time as any. Three months into her pregnancy, my mother was told she was having twin girls. Now in the 70s, ultrasounds were not a perfect science, and the equipment my mother's doctor used couldn't pick up the dangling thing between my legs that's the telltale differentiator between boys and girls. As such, my mother and father told their friends that they were having twin girls and planned accordingly. My parents decided on the names Kelly and Josephine in honor of their mothers. When we were born, they were as shocked as anyone that I was, in fact, a boy. Because they already had clothes embroidered with the names Kelly and Josephine, and because my parents are cheap bastards, they went with Kelly, not thinking about the hell it would put me through. No one can fuck you like family. Your parents have a sick sense of humor, 
Pete said. I have a question for you, Kelly. Are you a hunter or are you a farmer? I'm a moderator, I replied. Yeah, all of you are moderators. But what I want to know is, what kind of moderator are you? Do you hunt or do you farm? Do you chase after business looking to kill it? Or do you sit on the sidelines waiting for it to sprout? Because I got news for you. I want hunters, not farmers. I billed $1.5 million last year, Pete. I'm not sure if I did that hunting or farming, but I ate pretty well. It would have been great if I actually said this, but true to my nature, I just thought it. Pete turned around and left the room, but not before looking back and saying, Hunters. He then pounded his chest like Tarzan and walked down the hall. Over the next year, he treated me like a red-headed stepchild. I knew he wanted to fire me because, well, he would often pass me in the hall and say, I really want to fire your ass, Kelly. The problem was, I was his most profitable resource, and firing me would have been like shooting himself in the foot. While I mean that metaphorically, the hyper-testosterone goon actually did wind up shooting himself in the foot. He invited himself hunting with some actual hunters, and smartly, the people he was with only gave him a twenty-two, which was barely enough to take down a squirrel, let alone a deer, but they smelled an idiot when they saw him and were nervous about giving him too much firepower. As dumb as they figured him for, they didn't expect him to play with the trigger when the barrel was resting on his shoe. For this reason, he was working from home in the beginning of December. My job requires a lot of travel, and I see my fair share of airports every week. Just five minutes ago, my phone rang while I was in the Delta Sky Club at Los Angeles International Airport. With three weeks to go before Christmas, I was eager to make my way back to New York after finishing a project to understand how recently divorced women in their 40s approach dating. It was commissioned by a skincare client looking to market a new miracle-in-a-bottle face care product. The caller ID on my phone read, Fuckface. Because I am non-confrontational by nature, I get some revenge by giving people I don't like derogatory names in my phone's address book. Petty? Yes. But definitely satisfying. I picked up the phone and heard Pete's voice on the other end. Kelly, I'm glad I caught you. He never calls me so I immediately knew something was up. Why the hell didn't you pick up the first time I called? Because I fucking hate you. Okay, I thought it. I didn't say it. The truth is, I was in a trance making some edits to the novel I've been writing for three years and, at first, didn't even feel the phone vibrate in my pocket. You see, in addition to being a moderator, I'm also an aspiring novelist. How did Project Beaver go? Since I was talking to recently divorced women, and since he's a complete sexist, he referred to the study I just wrapped as Project Beaver. Client is very pleased. Did you get any? No, Pete, I didn't get any. What do you need? Figures. Fucking farmers never get any. My conversation with Pete was interrupted by an attractive woman who motions for my attention. She clearly saw him on the phone but didn't seem to give a shit. Pete, can you hold on a second? What the fuck? Do not put me on hold. No one puts Pete Jackson on hold. As if you needed any more proof of his assholery, P 
Pete Jackson talks about Pete Jackson in the third person. I turned my attention to the woman. She's familiar looking, but I can't place her. What? I ask. Can you watch my bag while I go to the ladies' room? We're in the Delta Lounge. Your bag will be fine. What's the big deal? Just watch it, okay? Fine, I replied, and watched her walk away. I noticed that other people couldn't take their eyes off her, and some began to whisper. Then I hear Pete Jackson's voice again. Farmer Kelly, where are you? Here, sorry. Why are you calling me? Well, I'll get right to it. There's no easy way to say this, but... I immediately envisioned him sitting at home with his injured foot wrapped in maxi pads because he was too cheap to buy the bandages his doctor recommended. The business has been soft lately, and you are a lever I have to pull. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Was this idiot firing me over the telephone three weeks before Christmas? What does that mean, a lever? Let me put it in farming terms for you. Let's say you're a farmer, right? Which, of course, you are. Let's say that for 17 years, your farming feeds you very well. Crops come up year after year. But then all of a sudden, there's a drought. No crops. But there hasn't been a drought. I've grown my business 20% over the last year. I'm on the road more than anybody else. By this time, the familiar-looking mystery woman returned to her bags and took the seat across from mine. Pete continued, Right, the drought hasn't hit you yet, but it hit Heather, Lori, and Brian. He named three of my colleagues who haven't had a project since October. So why aren't you talking to them? Because they are hunters. I've seen porn with better plot lines than the story he tried to sell me. Apparently not very good ones. In true Carson form, I thought it, but didn't say it. Listen, the fact is they're cheaper than you. I can actually hire three more hunters for what we pay you. And I need more hunters. It's not personal. It's just business. The Godfather is one of my favorite films. And while normally I'd appreciate the reference, given the circumstances under which it was said, I didn't. Look, we will honor your bonus and pay you a severance of two months. After that, Kimasabi, I suggest you learn to hunt. He terminated the call before I could reply. Chapter 3. Meeting Terry Flynn I look up from my phone and find the woman sitting across from me staring into my eyes. She's also chewing gum and snapping it loudly. Normally gum chewing or any type of chewing for that matter, is a pet peeve. But I let it slide because she's a redhead. And in my experience, they're an 11 on the 10-point crazy scale. And the last thing I want to do is start an argument with a ginger in an airport lounge. Did you just get fired? She asks bluntly. Excuse me? You have a look on your face like you just got fired. I've seen that look before. Up-and-coming actors always have that same look after they bomb auditions. So she's a redhead and an actor. That's twice the crazy. And I'm not in the mood for crazy. Why didn't you stand up for yourself? She has no intention of letting this conversation die. 
I'd rather not talk about it. That's your problem. You're the type of guy who would rather not deal with conflict. It's no wonder your former boss doesn't respect you. Who the fuck does this woman think she is pretending to have insight into my life? Is that so? Yeah, I mean, look at you. You're a good-looking guy who was obviously successful based on the way you dress in that $1,000 laptop bag, but you don't have an ounce of fight in you. I mentioned before that I ate well the last year, so, yes, it's true that I've done well for myself. But what I don't need now is some ginger actress psychoanalyzing me in the middle of the LAX Delta Sky Club. Do you know why I asked you to watch my bags? Enlighten me. Because you look safe. I knew you wouldn't rifle through them like some of these other people. She motioned around to the other lounge guests, who all stared at her, and then me, with mouths agape. You think I need Julie fucking Andrews over there to find the pocket rocket I keep in my purse? Hell no. The woman she was referring to did resemble Julie Andrews, but Mary Poppins Julie Andrews, not Sound of Music Julie Andrews. I think I'd rather be left alone right now. Of course you'd rather be left alone, but I'm not going to leave you alone because you need me. All I want to do is go back to New York in peace. How funny. I'm going to New York, too. Where are you seated? The nice thing about flying so much is that I often get upgraded to first class. And today, being fired over the telephone notwithstanding, I got the nod from the Delta powers that be that I was worthy of a loyalty upgrade. 3A, I reply. She then shows me her boarding pass and points to her seat assignment. 3B. I also notice her name at the bottom of the pass. Terry Flynn. Seat buddy, she cheers with her arms in the air. This calls for a celebration. Do you want some champagne? Champagne? It's 8 a.m. Have them put some cassis in mine. I'll watch your bags. I walk over to the bar, order a glass of champagne with cassis for her, and an OJ for me. When I come back, I see her rifling through my bag. By the time I'm at my seat, she's going through my travel wallet. Is Kelly your wife? Why do you have her frequent flyer cards? My Kelly sense is tingling and I can foresee what is about to happen, so I don't respond. When she opens my passport to evaluate my picture, she puts two and two together. Fuck me in the ass and call me Charlie, she exclaims, much to the chagrin of the family sitting nearby. Your parents named you Kelly? Reluctantly, I explain the circumstances of my birth. So what you're telling me is you have a small dick? For the record, I have an average-sized penis. While it's certainly not going to cause a woman any massive degree of pain upon penetration, it's also not going to feel like a stick in a cave. But the story of how my parents were expecting twin girls due to the inability to spot my dick on an ultrasound has been told so many times by my parents that I can't help but get defensive about it. I was a fetus, I argue. Relax there, Kel. I'm just giving you a hard time. But I can't, in good conscience, call you Kelly. And I'm not a last name kind of girl because that's too military and my dad was in the military. And I've spent the better part of my adult life trying to undo all the rigidity of my upbringing. So I'm going to give you a nickname. 
Her blue eyes shoot up and to the left while she taps her pointer finger on her lips. Clark, she exclaims. That's the best you could do? You remind me of Clark Kent, quiet and reserved. But something about you gives me the impression that Superman's hiding inside. And you know what, Clark? Call me Lois, because I'm going to help you find your inner superhero. By this point, I realize I don't know anything about her aside from her name and my assumption that she's an actress. My thoughts are interrupted by a voice over the loudspeaker. For those of you traveling on Delta Flight 3827 to New York Kennedy's airport, I am sorry to inform you that due to bad weather in New York, your flight has been canceled. Please see us at the full service counter and we will do our best to accommodate you. Fuck, I say, much to the ire of the family matriarch beside us. I stand and grab my bag, intending to walk to the counter solo, but Terry follows me. Once we get there, I ask the representative, a woman named Beverly, why the flight was canceled and not simply delayed until the weather improves. The Northeast is getting slammed, she responds. For whatever reason, Beverly's counter is adorned by pictures of hand-drawn ninjas. While I'm certainly curious about that, I focus on the travel situation. How bad is it? I ask. All airports from New Jersey up to Maine are closed. We can book you on the first flight out tomorrow and offer you a free night in a hotel. Terry pipes up. Could you send us anywhere else? Oh, hi, Miss Flynn. My husband and I are such big fans, Beverly says while blushing. Of course, we could send you anywhere in the U.S. you'd like to go, so long as the airport is open. Terry. She corrects me. I told you, Clark. Call me Lois. Lois, I say through my teeth. What are you doing? I need to get back to New York. For what? It's not like your boss is going to fire you if you don't show up at work tomorrow. That stings a little, but I can see your logic. What, do you have a wife at home who needs you to knock on heaven's door and fulfill every sexual desire? If she only knew the truth. No, but... Then no buts. What you need is an adventure, and I'm going to give it to you. I hear Beverly tapping away incessantly at her keyboard. I can get you both on a flight to Maui. It leaves in 40 minutes. Lodging? Terry asks, flashing a Hollywood smile if I ever saw one. That's against the rules in this situation, but let me see what I can do. Beverly taps no fewer than 100 keystrokes, then looks up and smiles. Ritz-Carlton okay? That's where we put our flight attendants, and I can get you in there for two nights. Deal, Terry says. Before I can object, Beverly starts tapping again, and the dot matrix printer behind her comes to life. A second later, she hands us two boarding passes to Hawaii. Come on, Clark. It'll be fun. She walks ahead of me and exits the lounge. I shake my head, and against my better judgment, follow her out. <laughs>